It's immediately across to London now where Nick Smith-Savile joins us. Nick is uh, with a company called DebtWire. Uh, he's the global head of credit research there. And Nick, you've been doing some work on Eskom, particularly after the financial results were published for the year to the end of March. That, that was at the end of last month. Looking at it, we were expecting something perhaps a little better than the previous financial year. Did we get it in the numbers? Uh, in short, no. I think the, the numbers were, were, were pretty, pretty bad, significant decreases in profitability uh, between last year and this year. However, I think that was expected given the severe challenges that Eskom faced last year um, and the, the time it will take to turn around this business. Uh, it, it's uh, it's a little little too early to be expecting you know, improvements in reported numbers. I think you've got to look under the hood to find uh, find an answer as to as to whether these uh, this business is starting to improve. You analyse the numbers very carefully and would have been following Eskom for some years. What if the previous management had not been replaced? Where might we be now? I think that's uh, it's a very difficult question to answer and one which really almost doesn't bear thinking about, I guess, to, to contextualize where, where it might have been. Uh, the dollar bond that was issued last year when, when ESCOM came to the market uh, started trading down almost immediately after being issued and hit kind of the low, low to mid-90s. And it was only really in November when the, the turnaround plan was instituted or announced and it became clear that there was a concerted effort going to be put into turning around this business that the bond kind of rallied back and is, is now trading uh, quite, a, quite far above par. Uh, just explain to people who don't understand the uh, debt markets what that means. So all, all bonds are quoted as a percentage of their face value. So if I lend $1,000 to ESCOM, uh, the value of that is quoted as percentages of that face value. So 100 is that $1,000 loan is worth $1,000, 90 it would be worth 900 110 it would be worth 1100 mm -hmm. So at the moment, it looks like those who are investing their money are confident they will get it back. Yes, the, the, these are the guaranteed bonds, so they are guaranteed by the South African government. Right. Okay, getting more into the, uh, the results themselves, the Chief Financial Officer, Kalib Kassim, has said that Eskom A needs to cut its debt by half and B that government or somebody needs to take that away. If Eskom had 225 billion rands worth of debt, in other words, half of what it has at the moment, would it then be sustainable? My gut feel is no. Even if you took away half the debt, the business would still be nearly eight times levered. So it would have eight times its annual profits based on the last year's profits. To, to its debt. Um, that is substantially above where other power generating and transmission companies are, are levered. Uh, so it would, it would still have substantially more debt than other peers. Coupled with that, you then have the significant investment needs that are, that are there at ESCOM. You know, it has to refurbish its fleet. It has to invest in a new generation of capacity utilization and execute on, on the resource plane to ensure that it's its generating capacity is therefore sustainable for South Africa into you know, the middle of this, uh, this century and, and, and beyond. So I think without truly understanding the, the unbundling, which is perhaps another topic we'll come on to, 
it's very difficult to say whether that uh, that level of debt will be sustainable. I think you have to understand the financial engineering and exactly where that debt is going to be placed in order to understand what the sustainable level of, of debt for this business truly is. What about that unbundling? Because that's been portrayed as the rescue of Eskom, but we haven't heard much in the past few months about how that's going to be implemented. No, and it's really something that was announced and, and continues to be talked about, but without real detail. And so the chief restructuring officer has been recently appointed. Uh, it is his job to to kind of fulfill and follow through on that. And the, there is the, the ESCOM paper, in inverted commas, which should be released in the coming weeks, which should start to detail uh, that uh, program. Uh, one of the things that is noted in the annual report is that the the board is starting to work on the, the separation of the business units to allow full legal separation. But one of the things they're very clear on, even at this kind of early stage, is that this is going to be a multi-year process to allow full separation of, of all those business units. Within South Africa, uh, from a practical perspective, we haven't seen any load shedding for some months now. That, I think, is making the man in the street feel a little bit more comfortable about Eskom, but should we be? With the plans that are being undertaken, the actions that are being undertaken, there is a, a clear and concerted effort to improve, improve that situation. Would you buy the bonds now, Eskom bonds? Has a question I'm, I'm not necessarily regulated to answer, but one of the things that we've, we've discussed at, at length is how investors should be thinking about particularly the guaranteed bonds and how they relate, therefore, to, to the South African sovereign. And the South African sovereign trades tighter than the, the ESCOM guaranteed bonds, and we think substantially that the risk of those two is, is the same, given the right of recourse that the, the investor has. You've mentioned guaranteed bonds. Are there, uh, is there a big difference between the pricing of a guaranteed bond and a non-guaranteed bond from Eskom? Yeah, in terms of yield to maturity, so how much uh, you would earn if you held the bonds to its maturity. If we look at the, the dollar bonds issued last year, uh, both maturing in 2028, there's about a 1.7% difference in that yield. What would I be receiving if I bought a guaranteed Eskom bond today or government guaranteed Eskom bond? and then a non-guaranteed? So the, the guaranteed bonds, uh, the US dollar bonds are 5.25%, and the non-guaranteed bonds are 6.92%. Wow, that's a big difference uh, when you put it that way around. Nick, just yeah. look, looking at Eskom, generally speaking, as an as a analyst based in London, are you feeling uh, confident that the policymakers in South Africa are getting their hands around the problem? I think it's taken longer than perhaps we would have liked. We would have liked, as ever investors would, more, more details sooner. However, I think there are clear steps that are being taken to, to try and address the, the sustainability of this business. And I think that, that has to be a positive compared to where we were sat 12 to 18 months ago. Nick Smith-Savile is with DebtWire and talking to us from London about the big story in South Africa, of course, which remains so uh, Eskom at the moment to a man in the middle of a fire. Uh, his name is Ram Otapatu, who's the founder of Choppies, and he faces some pretty hectic questions at an EGM that's been called for the suspended company in September. Coming up in a moment. 
Well, it's a warm welcome to Ram Otapatu, who's the founder of Choppies, a company that is well known in Botswana, listed on the Johannesburg Stock Exchange. Trading in the stock was suspended in November last year because of financial statements being late. Ram, you are the man who's, who's like the lightning rod, who's getting all the blame for what's happening here. Yet, you're also the man who said, let's have an extraordinary general meeting on the 4th of September. Why did you call for that, for the EGM? Uh, look, uh, we, we, we had lots of uh, issues in the government, as well as uh, for the performance of the company. So, myself and the board were not in the... Uh, not getting into the same vision, taking this company forward. That's why I requested for an EGM. And uh, I did uh, request to the board uh, for change in the structures of the board and uh, governance and things like that. Uh, it is a collective uh, responsibility. You can't just say that I'm, I was the only one to be blamed. It is, it is the board who was operating the company. Everybody was involved. And I, I, I take the blame because I was in the forefront. And I, I accept that it is... The first blade puts, uh, gives for me, and, but we need to t- t- get a way forward. Uh, that way forward is very important for Shopee. That's why, uh, and the, 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 the forensic investigation results are out, the legal investigation results are out, and I reiterate that from the word go, I've been saying that there was no personal verification from any of these transactions. Neither there's no fraud or misappropriation. There is, though, a, a legal and a forensic uh, investigation that does point fingers at you. Have they got it wrong? Some of them. Uh, wait for my circular to come out on Monday. You will see that most of the things, what is mentioned in those, those reports, are questionable. Not only questionable, it will be, some of them will be completely reversed. So what, what's the motivation, then, uh, behind them for these professional companies making the kind of statements or reports that they have? Uh, that legal uh, summary is not made by the professional company. I want to reiterate that that legal, uh, that uh, forensic uh, report uh, summary is prepared by some of the board members and uh, some of the staff of the company. The legal report summary is made by the legal, uh, legal consultant. Yes, uh, I'll have answer to each and every legal point there. And the uh, forensic report, that there is absolutely, that report is inconclusive. I read that report three times. They're just making inferences based on their interpretation. That, that will be challenged. Not only challenged, it will be set, as, set aside. If it goes to a, a beyond a certain level, it will be set aside straight away. Mm. Rem, what are you going to do about it, though, if you... The, the point that you're making now is that they've got it wrong, that it, it came from people within the organization. So how does one reverse this? So we, we, I, I will be able to substantiate that uh, this is not taking into consideration the basic commercial principles and business run in good faith. All right. So from your perspective, everybody's got it wrong. Uh, what is the outcome? No, I'm not saying for? everybody got it wrong. There are, there are governance issues. I'm not denying there was government. The company has grown at a very fast rate. Uh, the company grew five times in four years. Naturally, at this growth level, you buy, you will find uh, you about to see that what uh, agreement is not signed in, in the right way, or what agreement was late to sign, or 
those are government classes uh, from the word go i'm telling there's no significant fraud or personal identification or misappropriation in the company and can vouch for that okay i got it so in other words you grow fast the governance was perhaps not paid attention to in the way that uh, formal businesses like to see it but exactly, yes, nobody yes. stole any money and least of all you that, that, yes exactly that i can comfortably say none of our management uh, are taking any personal benefit out of this company yes now the results uh, were supposed to have been released in the middle of last year they've been outstanding yeah it, it, it will be towards the end of september so so what happened there you get the results of 2018 and 2019 financially half year results published together later on we need to wait for the 2019 results Mm-hmm. But but why are the financial results for 2018? Why were they so late? Because of the delay in finalizing the forensic report and the legal report. It came out only end of July, and uh, forensic came out first week of August. Okay, but uh, the suspension of your shares on the Johannesburg Stock Exchange happened in November. Yes. Yeah, now uh, because the result is not published, you cannot trade. Uh, that is about Johannesburg Stock Exchange rule, BAT rule. You have to accept that. So what happens next? We're waiting for the EGM, and from the EGM, the next step is to finalization of the book and publication of the result. And uh, I'm hoping for, a, uh, even I'm suggesting a proper legal review of our entire government system. I did give a proposal in, uh, end of April to the board. They rejected it, saying that, no, you're not uh, uh, talking the right thing. But anyway, if uh, we get it in our way, we're going to do this and we're going to rectify whatever lapses were in the past, and we're going to make sure that Chopis gets back its glory in the next 14 to 24 months. And the uh, suggestion that, or the proposal that you should be subjected to a disciplinary inquiry, has that been taken off the table? No, it's always been there. There's a, let them put the, I'm still waiting for the charges, not even put uh, the charges through to me. All right, so... So, if I, if I can summarize just from the way I understand it, the company has grown very rapidly. There are governance issues, which you admit uh, were not fulfilled, but there's been no skullduggery. And, uh, once Nothing. And uh, I, I saw some of the reports. They are completely wrong in saying those things. And uh, some of them will be challenged in the court. And when are you expecting to get this all behind you so that your shareholders can have the shares trading again? Hopefully, hopefully the 4th of uh, September we'll have the EGM. And uh, if it goes away, you'll see start changes from the 5th morning. So it'll, go, it'll be quite quickly then thereafter for, yes. for everything to be settled back to normal. Yes. Yeah. Thank uh, you. Just one last point, Ram. Um, are yes. you... Are you uh, going to be leaving South Africa? The, it was quite exciting when you came into South Africa. Apparently, you have now... Uh, look, that's, a board, that, that's a board decision. They have invited the uh, expression of interest. We, we, very, very, that is a very preliminary stage. Uh, I am not going to comment on that at this point. In time. But you have 88 stores in South Africa. 92 uh, stores. 92 stores. Um, and yes. and the, the anticipation was that you could... Uh, reproduce your success formula from Botswana in the South African market. Has that not happened? It, it was it was successful. 
And even now, there's only one division in the Northwest is struggling. The other division in Derby is doing extremely well. And uh, even uh, a chance, this can be fixed. So it all depends on how much patience uh, we and the industrial body, uh, that is how uh, it is going to be planning out. Ram Otapatu, who's the founder of Choppies. Earlier today, I spoke with Mike Wiley. He is the outgoing chairman of Wilson Bailey Homes of Con, WBHO. And uh, to find out a little about his story and how the company, the construction company, has managed to still be standing when all those around it seemed to have been falling over. What got you into Wilson Bailey in the first instance back in 1974? Um, <clears throat> I, I, was, um, I did my degree at UCT and then um, I had a bursary from the city council and when I, um, I thought I needed to get some real practical experience so I then just put my feelers out. I had a Offers from uh, about three companies who <clears throat> I still know, and um, Will, uh, Wilson Homes had just won a uh, contract to build the bridge over the Berg River in Paul, and they offered me 50 rand a month more than um, the other two. So I said, okay, let's go. So we moved to Durbanville, and I used to commute from Durbanville to Achterpaal, and um, we built this bridge, and that was the beginning. And um, after a few more contracts in the country, I, I moved up to Johannesburg and I said to um, my wife, Wendy, we'll just see what it's like for five years. And, and um, even now, she doesn't want to go back. Uh, so you're actually from the from the Cape? In the... So I went to school at Sachs, and um, we went to UCT, and, uh, yeah, my family's still down there. How big was Wilson Homes back then? No, it was small. It was um, just John Wilson and um, Brian Holmes. Uh, John Wilson was at LTA and Brian Holmes was a tenderer. <coughs> because if you start a construction company, you've got to have a good tenderer. And, and John knew that. So he said to Brian, come on, let's go. And that's good. And I joined a couple of years later. And then we ran very conservatively, you know, paying cash for everything. And one of the experiences I had um, early on was um, a company that I was just started with in, in Cape Town went into liquidation. And and that you know I was on site and I was wondering why the guys were trying to get their reinforcement back from back to their yards, and uh, yeah, so that gave me a really good lesson. I actually did a BCom after that just through UNISA, so uh, that was a really good experience for me, and it tied in with John and Brian who were very conservative, and um, yeah, so that was through the 80s, and then early 80s we merged with uh, Peter Bailey Construction, who was much more outgoing, and uh, <coughs> um, that was a good combination. And uh, yeah, and in those eighties, they were tough times, you know. Um, there wasn't as tough much as now. Um, yeah, yeah, it was it was really tough. There was I can remember coming back from holiday and we had one job, you know, and it was we were just wondering how we were going to survive from one year to the next. Remember, interest rates went up to twenty four percent in early eighties. Yeah, so it was it was really tough. And then um, we managed to get through that and. Um, yeah, then in, in the, even the 90s were very difficult. You know, there was so much uncertainty in the country, also very similar to now. And funny enough, our whole, we had no road work at all. And, um, our wonder, our, our roads, um, director, Paul Pixon, um, had, had a lot of, um, contacts in Botswana. And he, he spent part of his early life there. And we moved, uh, we did a lot of work in Botswana. And that actually kept us going. And then it gradually improved during the 90s and until we listed in 94. When did you take over as CEO? I took over in, in about 89, 90. I was, um, 
CEO of the or MD of the building company, and Paul Thiessen was the CEO of the roads and earthworks company, and then um, I took over as CEO in 2000 2002, and then Brian Holmes was um, retired soon after that, and, and I, I was I was then chairman and CEO for for quite quite a few years, and then I um, moved to chairman in about. 2010, and that's when Loki Nell came in as CEO. Yeah, so it's been about 10 years that I've been just chairman. In effect, leading the business has been almost 20 years of your half of your experience with Wilson Bailey. It is also the last man standing. If you have a look at the construction industry, some of the huge names of the past, Avenge, Marin Roberts, uh, Group 5, who are all much bigger than Wilson Bailey uh, as you were growing the business, uh, are now either either bust or or very much on their knees. What was it about your company that has caused this incredible outperformance? We always seem to have an advantage. You know, I think it was because we were just, um, you know, we were very quick on our feet. We we just didn't, we weren't uh, we didn't have heavy overheads. We especially we weren't listed in the mid 90s, and even when we did list, it didn't really make much difference to the way we operated and we started taking market share I would say in a, in a significant manner in about 2000 and you know in 2000 I think our turnover was about a billion and then in 2005 it got to 5 billion 2010 it got to 15 um, and then that's when I turned 60 and then I thought okay I'm going to start thinking about it but it was so exciting at that time because we then um, just started taking more and more market share. In in 2015, we were up to 25 billion, and now we're 40 billion. You know, so I think we took a lot of market share, and um, which has, you know, there's a story why that happened. And I think the you know, the big companies like um, you know Kronika LTA, I think they really lost their way. Look, there's a story behind Basil Reed um, Group Five. There's a story behind each one. And it all comes back to people and um, the decisions people make. And, uh, you know, I suppose it applies to any company. And, and that puts a huge premium on the people that you have around you. How, how was it that you at WBHO managed to get uh, people who thought differently, perhaps? You know, I read, I remember we used to, I used to get these, I don't know if you remember, um, in the late 80s, 90s, um, uh, Jim Collins and and um, Stephen Covey, they used to broadcast these um, talks um, from overseas. And we used to get a satellite dish put up here and all the guys, we'd come in and learn about the seven habits. And and there was a <clears throat> there was a common theme to all that that I picked up. And I think it was confirmed in a few uh, articles, maybe from Harvard University, I remember. And that was management continuity. So I got really... Um, hooked on management continuity. In other words, there should be no reason why you ever employ somebody from outside. And, uh, you know, because it's our jobs all the time uh, to be creating career paths. First of all, employing the right people and then creating career paths for them so that when when the people retire or these opportunities or people leave, you can easily fill those positions with people with the same culture, with with the same experience, the same understanding, all the WBHO systems, and it just becomes, and that really worked for us, you know. So, and even to this day, as you can see from the latest changes, it's all from within. So, when I've heard companies searching internationally and searching outside, you know, the boards are searching for this and searching for that. 
I just shake my head, you know, and, and say to myself, well, what's wrong with them? The people are there in the company. They should be there in the company. But how do you bring through, particularly in the, uh, with the challenges that South Africa has with black economic empowerment, etc., how do you bring through people? How do you make sure that you've, A, recruit the right people, and B, that they stay the right people uh, when they get a few bucks in their pocket? Um, look, I think, um, especially these days, in, um, we are um, we're sort of vulnerable because people, you know, good guys join us, stay with us for three or four years, and become very marketable. So um, we do we do lose a lot of people. But I think once once people are with us for five, ten years, then they realise, you know, the grass on the other side is not greener. We don't necessarily pay any better, or sometimes I think, in fact, our salaries are, are normally a bit lower than the rest. Um, we do, but we're very bonus orientated. So, yeah, so we, you know, we just employ um, people that um, are sort of humble but smart. I think if I can put two words, we just want guys that, and, and obviously people that just love the outdoors and, and love getting their hands dirty and getting excitement about building something and, um, you know, being creative. So I think it's, um, yeah, so we, and that's a certain type of person. We certainly like BSC civil engineers. And, you know, we, we like those guys because they have the maths behind them. The maths is so important and that overall intelligence. And, um, on the, on the, um, admin side, we've obviously got a lot of CAs and then sort of everything flows from that. And it's, it's that sort of, um, humility and strength that we look for. And, you know, it, it's, it comes, a lot of people have it and a lot of happy people have it. So, and that creates, you know, all the sort of dimensions of quality that we need and that we know will be sustainable. And that's almost become a habit now, you know. And um, so I think, yeah, I think that's really it. But when you are considering uh, whether to promote someone from a, a relatively young age, what do you look for? What qualities or what values do you look for in those people? Um, you know, um, I, I learned these from a management consultant friend of mine, and uh, I think it also that it comes from <clears throat> all those um, American guys, um, the management consultants. And it's, you know, I've got I've got it down to um, five five uh, um, adjectives, I suppose you would call them. We want we want uh, people, and we can measure. You know, when I look at our team that we've got now, that you know, as I walk away, there's been a lot of movement. It's not just Loki taking over from me or Wolfgang taking over to see. Oh, there's a whole lot of movement down, which creates excitement. And and I look back and I see every single one of these guys has has every one of these attributes, and that's reliability, um, responsiveness, credibility, empathy, and attractiveness. So. You know, if a guy's got that with an umbrella over that of intelligence, um, you've got a winning formula. And, um, you know, it, it actually makes me laugh because when we, when, if, if, we, if we went outside to get a new CEO, we would get uh, about 20 CVs and we would interview people and each of those guys would be saying how great they are and how they're the right men for the job and really promoting themselves. When we approached our guys, you know, to take over these senior positions, the first reaction is always, oh, sure, I don't think I can do that job, you know. Then, you know, are you sure? Are you sure I'm the right person? And that's the people we want. Mike Wiley, as you heard a moment ago, after 45 years with Wilson Bailey Homes, he is now finally stepping away. He'll be doing it formally in November. But uh, I really like the story that he tells about internal promotion. David Shapiro is our man on the markets. Dave, it's interesting. I, I asked Mike in that interview, what makes you different? What's the secret sauce? And he said it's from uh, they realized a long time ago that they had to grow their own timber. 
they had to promote their own people internally. And it, it really is a, a big distinction. He was saying he laughs when he sees companies trying to find chief executives from different parts of the world because it just shows that they haven't really been approaching the basics correctly. Yeah. Yeah, I, I, I'm a big critic of uh, human resources, um, HR, because uh, in many businesses, HR become nothing more than salary clerks or otherwise doing nothing else but presenting or promoting the uh, um, aims of the of management. And what they should be doing is actually training up people and looking after people uh, within the organization. Um, and, you know, great organizer. Breweries was great. Remember, SA Breweries mm-hmm. always took people from within, from with, within divisions and that. But where you have to go and look outside, you're never going to get a person with the same culture. And you know what happens, Alec? In most of those cases, when you bring an outsider, you normally find a lot of insiders start to leave and you, lo- leave, you lose a whole layer of, of top management as new management comes in. So, um, yeah, good for Mark. I, I always liked Wilson Bailey Homes. It was one of the, the noble construction companies and always seemed to hold their, hold their own. I know they're having a few issues in Australia at the moment, but still a very, very strong company. Yeah, he's very happy with uh, handing over the reins now. Uh, and he turns 70 in October, been there a lifetime. But a, another company which has grown a lot of its own timber is Discovery. Now, yeah. we had a good chat about it last week. You were going to yes. see the analyst from Macquarie who'd apparently yeah. found a 15 billion rand hole in their oh, account. What yeah. happened? Well, we, look, it, it caused a uh, furor. Um, it was just a difference in opinion on the valuation techniques. Um, in fact, we're seeing the analyst tomorrow. Right? The, the appointment was cancelled, but it did cause quite a bit of discussion. And, and I think that... Um, Management haven't quite answered it yet. I think they are in a closed period. What disturbs me, Alec, and I, I, I always look at the market for clues about whether things are going right or wrong. And, you know, even as, as you've been talking to me, I've been looking at a company, Blue Label, and I see they've fallen below 300. It worries me delaying their accounts. And the same thing with Discovery. The fact that the share price is now in the low 100s, we know the consequences of national health. But I think that where you find a share price in October, sorry, in August has fallen over 20% and, and hold it there, it tends to say that there, there, there are deeper issues that we have to look at. Those deeper issues may be that the economy is slowing here and they're not quite generating the returns or the earnings that they should be to fund all those very ambitious projects that they have. So you've always got to look for a, a bigger story when share prices fall. So, you know, there are there are issues. Maybe the evaluations are stretched, but at the moment we can't get the answer simply because uh, they're in a closed period. Mm. Uh, you mentioned Blue Label. That's a company mm. whose stock has come down a long, long way. Uh, what are you making of what's happening there? Well, you see what's also happened, which I can't understand, and I've got to ask questions. They're delaying their accounts, and uh, the account should have come out, I think, either today or tomorrow uh, for the year to – 30th of May, so they're a May year in. Now, where they delay their accounts pending a deal, and that deal is a life-saving deal, um, I'm surprised that the stock exchange uh, didn't insist that they publish their accounts, and you know, because I don't think the deal has been signed. And uh, but it's obviously pointing to very difficult conditions when they took over Cell C. Um, these, you know, the mobile companies today, Alec, 
chew cash. They need lots and lots of capital development, and they sell a product, I always joke, that everybody wants for free. You know, you want to go to Starbucks and you want to use their Wi or their free Wi-Fi. Mm. So I think I think it's also pointing, especially recently, the share prices have fallen to uh, lows that we haven't seen since the listing in 2007. Also, just pointing to um, a situation which I think is going to be very, very difficult or costly for them to uh, turn around. But this is a negative 10 bagger in the last yeah. uh, four yeah. years. In 2016, yeah. it was. Trading at that's 21 right. bucks now it's uh, yeah. well it's heading towards two <laughs> two rand. And, and that, that's Celsius. That, Celsius. Yeah, I I used to I uh, used to have it in our well I stopped those portfolios a while ago <laughs> now but in the SA Champions portfolio and then we yeah. sold out when we saw the problems coming with Net One. Remember they got together with yeah. Net One and they that's bought right. Celsius and that's and right. uh, just as well we sold out. I think at a yeah. small loss but it wasn't it wasn't really that mm. that uh, there was much in it. I was worried about the scandal that was hitting net one at that time. It's a good story of Buffett's, isn't it? When you see a scandal hitting a yep. company, run for the hills. I, it's a, you know what? His story, and it's quite, it causes a lot of aggro. He always used to say, you know, if you see a, cock, if you see a cockroach in the kitchen, uh, sooner or later you're going to meet the family. And <laughs> I love that one. You know, and, and I say that because when problems hit, just be careful. It's best then to sell out there and wait until it settles. You can always come back once the problem is sorted. And uh, where the share price also points towards – share price performance also points towards – Issues. We saw it in Tongart. We saw it in, we're seeing it in Aspen to an extent now as well. I mean, to a large extent. Now, Aspen is down over almost 30% in the last month as well. And there's no turnaround. No one's coming in to save the company. Funny enough, Sassel is picking up a little bit now. Sassel's in a better position than it was last week, meaning that maybe the results, maybe the market overreacted to these, uh, to the numbers. So, Alec, it's a warning. You know what? You don't. You don't have to be the savior. Don't look for. Don't catch falling knives, or don't try call the bottom. Uh, rather wait for the company to turn around and be sure that it's on a recovery path. I guess Steinhoff shareholders will be feeling exactly that now. After all the problems hit and the share price fell from what is it, fifty rand down to yeah. nine, eight, seven rand. At that point. Many people were still piling back in, thinking yeah. they'd get back to 50 Rand. But the scandal had hit, and if you listen to Buffett, that's the time to bail. At yeah. 80, yeah. 80, what's it, 87 cents now? Oh, lots of people yeah. burning. Yeah, exactly. And there were so many, uh, you know, everybody tried to look for value within the accounts and saying they'll overcome this and these, these, you know, that they, they try to work out the liability, but there was just too much for these, for these poor chaps to handle now. You know, whoever's trying to uh, save the company, just run, mm. run. You know, you can always look for good companies. <laughs> don't, don't always, don't always look for your fortunes in trying to buy bad companies. But even with the good companies, we've seen discovery hitting oh, yeah. a, hitting a, a, an obstacle. Yeah. Talk to me about Sassel. You seem to feel a little more comfortable than many I, did when, when it immediately came out that they would be postponing their results on Monday. They should have come out on Monday. They postponed their results, and the share price dropped 16% before yeah, recovering yeah. on that day. Well, well I, th I think what's happened with Sassel now, I look at the share price performance, and it seems to be creeping up. And I think stories begin to circulate that uh, the trading update that they gave a couple of weeks ago uh, will still be, will not be adjusted. It is merely that 
the investigation is looking for certain control um, control issues with between the contractors and the company itself, and it's probably of a technical nature. So I'm reflecting on 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 the share price, the way that it's you know the way that it's performing, just shows you that whatever stories are out there, um, investors are slightly more comfortable with the with the situation. That doesn't detract from the fact that they're going to be massive write-offs, and it's going to take a long time for them to recover. Uh, any, you know, anywhere close to recovering the kind of money that they ploughed in. So I'm not, uh, I'm merely saying that things are slightly better than they were last week, but uh, still, it doesn't, uh, it doesn't get management off the hook. The price is halved in a year, in the yeah. last year. Yeah. Does yeah. that mean that it's now offering value or overpriced then? Well, that's, you've got to decide whether it, whether it offers value. You know, you've got to be, Alec, we've got to be sure that this project actually does what it was supposed to do, you know, putting out, uh, I can't pronounce all those chemical names, but mainly polyethylene, you know, that it does what it has to do and those polyethylene prices hold and that management gets this uh, functioning properly. We're still a far away from that. This is a new plant and there's always teething problems with it. So am I about to buy it now? I'd rather hold on. I'd rather sit on the, you know, on, on the sidelines. And if it starts to function well even if you buy it at four rand or five rand you know that's uh um you'll still make plenty of money knowing that the problems are behind them so uh, once more you know we don't have to be saviors we don't have to be florence florence nightingales or whatever <laughs> emily hobhouses you know? we, we don't have to repair everybody David Shapiro is the Deputy Chairman of Sassfin Securities and, uh, well, he, as always, gave us great insights. We're going to be talking in just a moment with someone else with amazing insights, looking at South Africa's unemployment rate and actually unpacking why it isn't 29%. or more li- It's more like 12%. Stay with us. Well, the man I was telling you about a moment ago is Gigi Alcock. We've spoken over the years. Gigi um, is, well, his family, in fact, Uh, featured quite prominently in one of the greatest books to come out of South Africa in in the modern era, My Traitor's Heart by Rian Milan. Uh, I was looking at it again the other day, Gigi, reading through it uh, once more, not just in anticipation of this interview, but it's it's really worth another read. And I see it's dedicated to your mom, to Craner. Is is your mom still alive? Yeah, she is. She um she's 87 and she still lives in a mud hut on the banks of the Tigela River with no running water or electricity the way she's always lived. And that's how you grew up. Exactly. Yeah, in a, in in the same mud hut um with uh, very little uh very happy to get away from it and and uh, become a capitalist. <laughs> but it did give you a unique insight into a part of the country that many people ignore. Yeah, I think, you know, the big thing was understanding, I guess, culture and lifestyle. So obviously above speaking the language. And um, that's one of the things I guess I've built my career and written my books about is really understanding people's lifestyles in a completely different uh, world. Now, Gigi, we saw this week your article, which I thought was absolutely brilliant, refreshing, innovative, looking at the economy in a different way. But we saw it evoking very strong response from the business community. On the one hand, there are the traditionalists who say, who is this guy saying the unemployment rate is only 12% when Stats SA uh, uh, says it's, it's 29? Uh, why is it that, that the, those doing the formal recording of the economy are actually getting it so wrong, in your opinion? 
Alec, I think that um, there's an entire economy out there that, that is invisible in essence to, to formal economists in the formal sector, which, um, and, and the general assumption is that um, this informal sector is about subsistence and survivalist businesses, which is absolute rubbish. I mean, just the food business, what I call Gassi courses, with 87 billion rand a year, 50,000 outlets. Outlets can earn from 50,000 rand a day um, you know, upwards. Uh, there's hawkers in downtown Joburg who are selling three to six thousand fed cooks for one rand each every single day, six days a week. So, uh, and that's the food sector and, and so on and so on. So there's a huge number of, of very successful businesses. Many of them have been there for, you know, 10, 15, 20 years. There's no way they're subsistence or survivalists. They're actually a strong and successful business in their own right. Um, there's billions of rand in turnover. Just, just the school, um, with the, um, you know, the school mamas who are selling snacks to school children and in township schools, the average mama can earn between three and a half and six thousand rand a month profit, which is more than the, um, you know, than the minimum wage for domestic servants. And I mean, I've profiled these guys in, in my book, Gasinomic Revolution, as, as Gasinomic Revolutionaries who, um, and, and, and so we have this, multitude of these small businesses, but they're not recognized and they're misunderstood and they're misrepresented in terms of the assumption is if the minute there's a job appeared um, somewhere else, they would leave their job and they would uh, and they would take a formal job, which again is, is completely untrue. So, um, you know, so, so we, we have to, and, and, and if you ask these people, if they don't have a pay slip, people in South Africa will say to you they're unemployed. Whether they're earning an income from some sort of thing like rental, um, uh, or, or they, they don't have a formal job, they will say, I, I don't work, I, I'm not employed, I work, you know, and I've quoted that in my article. People say, you know, which basically means I don't have a job, but I work. Why is it that uh, the the bulk of people who live in the first world just don't get this? Because if you look at the comments under the article and the the comments that that were on Facebook pages, etc., uh, it 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 comes from a, a I dare I say arrogance of ignorance. So well, let's just inside, so if you were in, in Lagos, um, you know, there's 20 million people in Lagos and. Uh, only three to four percent of the economy is formal. In Lagos, you would talk about the main economy being the informal economy. In South Africa, we play around with the formal economy as the only economy. We have no concept of the rest of the economy. Uh, and very few businesses have actually got it right in terms of getting involved in, in that economy. Even if you just look, I mean, one of the things I believe will transform our economy in terms of, of the issues which we currently have is allowing credit to um, what I kind of call we're venture lenders, you know, getting credit to lend to small businesses so these businesses can grow um, and employ more staff and et cetera, et cetera, all the things that these small businesses do. But there's not a single bank in the country that will lend money to a small business. There's not a single bank that will lend money to a township household to build back rooms. Now, the backroom rental industry is worth about – uh, just on the, the residential side, about 30 billion rand a year in, in rentals, um, in rental income. I mean, that's 30 billion rand that's coming into people's pockets. Many of those people would be claimed as completely, um, as, as unemployed. And, uh, and if that was true, that they were unemployed and had no form of income as per the numbers, 
then actually there'd be a hell of a lot more people with the serious malnutrition in the country. We'd need uh, Bob Geldof to come along and get some bread loaves and hand them out. And, and that's not the reality of, of these environments. So, you know, our formal, I, I don't, I wouldn't call it an arrogance. I would just call it, um, a, a misperception, not even an ignorance. It's a misperception about incomes and, 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 and businesses and, um, the multitude and, and the value of that sector. It's a very interesting point that you've made there, that the banks won't lend to these people who do have viable businesses, perhaps on a micro level. But we've just seen being written into law in the New Credit Act a write-off, which the banks are going to have to take, of about 20 billion rand to people earning less than 7,500 rand per month. Again, probably formally, formally employed people. Uh, who've got 50,000 rands worth of debt. Now, by forcing the banks to write off this 20 billion, it sounds to me like you're going to give them a great disincentive to even look at uh, this market as an opportunity. So, so I think, um, Alec, my big drive, um, and particularly I kind of ended my book, Dynamic Revolution, about so what and where to now, is that we have to change regulations on a number of levels to adapt to this economy. So equally, many of the micro lenders, I spoke at the micro lender, uh, microfinance um, uh, conference last week and, and, uh, you know, they, they cannot use, for instance, someone who, who has, um, three back rooms who's renting them out for say, uh, you know, five or six or seven or 10,000 rand a month. They can't use that rental agreement to say that that person has an income. So, you know, regulations have been built around formal, formal stuff. I mean, even if you had an Airbnb and you were earning say 50 to a hundred thousand rand a month, banks uh, don't really look at you. So, you know, um, you know, one of my things is that first regulations have to adapt to a for, um, to an informal economy. Uh, both municipal bylaws, government laws, financial institutions, um, and, and the, the, you know, just, just from a, a security of tenure perspective, you know, we need to allow, um, small businesses to some, have some sort of security. Uh, the only way you grow a business or invest in a business is when you have some sort of security over your trading place. You don't have to own it, but you have the rights to trade from that place. Uh, and, um, and then, you know, if you had that security, then a bank could say, well, based on that, the fact that you have the rights to this space, you would, um, you would be able to, to say lend to you. Um, and, and, um, you know, there's a, um, I mentioned in my article, a place, a, a group called Asia Dafleni in Warwick Street in downtown Durban, who've completely transformed the Warwick Triangle, um, in, in, in association with the municipality and other bodies. Uh, where you have now a place where there's no crime, where um, there is, 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 you know, hundreds of thousands of people benefit from the livelihoods created there. It's become a tourist hotspot. Um, and guess what? Of all the things, those uh, hawkers and those traders in, in the Warwick Triangle pay, I think, something like 75 rand uh, square meter rental for their spaces. And many of them have been there for 10, 15, 20 years. Apart from anything, municipalities could earn money, government could tax this sector, but all of it needs, first of all, a recognition that these are businesses and that there is this business sector. 
Um, you know, the Minister of Small Business, not the current one, the previous one said we need more entrepreneurs in the townships. I'm like, there are hundreds of thousands of entrepreneurs in the township. You have to recognize them as such, number one. And number two, you have to support these uh, local entrepreneurs through through a, a range of different forms of support. Um, and then, And they're not formal sector type support or regulations. It seems pretty obvious, everything you're saying. Clearly, when you drive around uh, the townships, you see activity happening, not just there, but downtown Johannesburg, the old CBD. Is the message getting through? That drives me mad. I mean, in some cases it does. I mean, the the um, Gauteng Premier quoted my book extensively in his State of the Nation. I've had a very... Government, uh, uh, provincial governments, um, you know, speaking to me about this. But, uh, you know, um, no one was ever fired for designing the Toyota Corolla. You know, at the end of the day, very few people are willing to risk their anything in terms of doing something differently. And we've got a government and municipalities that are still stuck in a – I mean, look at Airbnb. They're trying to regulate Airbnb to limit this sector because we, we still design our cities and our regulations around – um, things that don't even recognize the gig economy. Imagine the, the informal economy. Uh, so it's, so it's incredibly frustrating and, and particularly because this is the solution. We are not creating the, the ANC said they're going to create one and a half million jobs in the next five or whatever years. Please, how are they going to do that in the formal economy? You're never going to do it. So we have to start doing things differently, looking at the sector differently. Um, but I must say, at the same time, this sector just putters on and ignores the rest of the world and, and creates livelihoods and incomes in a massive, massive scale. Uh, and so, you know, we could be elevating that. We could be growing that. We could be stabilizing that sector. But uh, if it doesn't happen, that sector will continue to exist. And, and I mean, the title of my book, Gasinomic Revolution, was saying that this revolution is happening and it's it's a growing sector. And, and um Ignore it at your peril, I guess. Did you, who do you invest in on the one hand? If you buy shares on the JSE, or secondly, uh, if, if you don't, what are the stocks, uh, what are the companies that are actually getting this right, that, that, get, that get the story you're telling us? So, look, I won't go the, the, the I mean, the, the, um, I profiled a, a few businesses uh, that, that are called uh, revolutionaries. One of them is a, is a fascinating business called Hello Pesa, which is a South African business that uh, is in the kind of telecoms and uh, money transfer and financial sector. Um, I think that, uh, that if I was looking at investing, I would find a, a sharp business in that, you know, when someone gets, gets, um, Payments uh, right at that uh, lower uh, level um, in the in the township and informal sector. That's a huge opportunity. Uh, the Tolerum Group are profiled in, uh, in 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 Nigeria. They turn over a billion US dollars a year just on instant noodles. They launched in South Africa under the Kellogg's brand um, using the same models they used in uh, in Nigeria incredibly successfully with a with a product you'd never expect, like instant noodles. Um, so, uh, but sadly, there's very few and far between that are, are doing it. I think there's quite a number of, of smaller businesses um, getting more involved in, in the sector and, and doing um, extraordinary things. I mean, the Hello Pesa group is, is, is a crazy example and well worth looking at um, uh, in terms of, of that financial sector as, as just as a starting point. Gigi Alcock is uh, from... Uh, Masinga, in deepest, darkest 
uh, rural KZN. In fact, Masinka came very last, came stone last of all the municipalities in South Africa on, on its governance in the, late, the latest survey. But my goodness, is he opening our eyes towards uh, things that are happening around us and just don't seem to be appreciated. More strength to his elbow. In just a moment, we're going to be picking up with James Dian. He is the author of uh, the first book to come out on Bosasa called The Bosasa Billions, uh, a scandal that has wrecked South Africa. Stay with us. Well, it's a warm welcome to James Stian, who's the editor of the first book to come out about Basasa called The Basasa Billions. You, uh, did I, by the way, did I get the pronunciation of your surname right, James? <laughs> uh, it's like Frankenstein, so Frankenstein. Ah, James Stein. Yeah. Okay, S-T-Y-A-N, anyway. It, uh, it, a different it, spelling, yeah. Is it in the, in the bookstores now? Yeah, the book's everywhere. It came out a bit uh, sooner than we'd hoped. The, the printers did a good job and and uh, got it into stores about two weeks sooner than we'd hoped for. So, yeah, it's available everywhere in South Africa at the moment. Well, you fast off the mark on this one, but uh, I suppose one, one the question has to be, it's still being investigated by the Zondo Commission. There's, uh, there's a lot more water to flow under this bridge. How does one, as an author take that into account that maybe something might be coming out in future which you haven't been exposed to yet I think there was enough there to to try to to write something and put it together for the broader public to to get an idea of what's going on here um, it's a similar with the Steinoff matter I mean that thing's still going to drag on for, for many years um, by which time most of the directly affected people might not even be around anymore um, so we felt it was certainly in the public interest to bring together what had been happening and try to lay out the story for, for everyone to get a better idea of, of the situation. Who's on the, who the Zonda Commission is, what they're trying to establish, who Angela Guichi is, who the Watsons are, where they come from. Um, you know, there's a lot of it all over the place, scattered around the place. Uh, and most people couldn't, haven't been able to follow the Zonda Commission closely. Mm. Uh, so, and it's, you know, so we, we brought it together. We thought, uh, Put out a book where, which brings it together, ties it together, um, and provides a foundation, you know, to analyze it from when further information does come out. Yeah, with well, these things, when they hit you every day, and uh, it, it's very difficult sometimes to to keep track on it. But you've been pretty good at this. I I, I can't remember when your Eskim story came out, your Eskim book, but that was ahead <laughs> of all the chaos. And then the Steinhoff as well. Just looking back on those two, uh, your 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 sense of of uh, whether things developed post uh, the the publication of your book in the way that you were expecting them to. Sadly, um, it, it seems to be the case. I, I'm not trying to post myself as some sort of uh, uh, soothsayer um, or anything like that. But when you look at the ESCOM thing in the book, which came out in 2015, I, I, I certainly predicted that we'd be going up to level stage, load shedding stage four um, and possibly beyond that. And we certainly saw that happening this year, 2019, when we saw the worst load shedding we'd, we've ever seen. Um, and I'm afraid that some of the things that, that you know, were predicted in that book might be still coming true as we speak. 
Um, yeah, so, you know, you don't know, you write these books, you hope people read it, you hope people see some value in it. And when I say people, I mean people in positions of authority and, and in, with the ability of, of making the right decisions. But, you know, it doesn't seem to be the case, but at least for posterity's sake, uh, it's there and we, like, people can't say that they weren't informed or didn't know. You've done a, How many books have you written? Four. The Basasa book is my fourth book. Uh huh. And it's uh, and do you have a day job as well, or is this your full time? I do. No, certainly. No, no, no. Sadly, I'm a part time author. It's certainly my passion. I used to be a journalist, uh, which means I can write quickly. That helps um, and analyze things and break it down quickly. I was a, I've got a financial background. I, I, I studied to be a chartered accountant. Uh, didn't finish. I did my articles, but uh, so I've got a finance background as well which helps uh, as well in breaking some of these complex things down a bit uh, to readable chunks uh, a bit easier. But I, I have a full-time job. I uh, work in, in the Western Cape Provincial Government as a communications advisor for one of the MECs. I'm sure there's some people that are going to uh, give you gears about that one, James, um, given that there's so yeah. much politics around this Basasa story. Look, I, I, I see myself as a, as a bureaucrat and, 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 a, and a government official, and I've, I believe that we've all got roles to play. And for me, I think continuing to write and, and laying things open in, in ways, you know, I don't try to pass judgment. I think if you go look at my books as well, uh, because these things haven't gone to court yet and the judge hasn't made a decision yet, I don't try to pass judgment. I just take the information that's there, repackage it in a readable fashion so that more of us can make sense of what's going on. Uh, there's a lot of things that's having real effects on all of our lives, and uh, I certainly believe it's it's one way that I can try to, to get to put in a little bit more to make the country work. So let's talk about the man in the moon. They arrive here on Earth, and they've now been told something in South Africa called Basasa has occurred. How would you describe it to them? Well, there's a, there's a company that's, um, for all intents and purposes, trying to make a real difference uh, uh, in uplifting previously disadvantaged people, they they involved in government business. Um, they've got uh, the, the bosses in that company have got struggle credentials uh, dating back to a, to a terrible time in our country's past, um, and they they certainly connected to very powerful individuals, leaders, and in government. And now it appears that by the evidence given by insiders who were at the very highest levels of that company, that uh, all was not what it seemed, and that this company has been getting business, government business, up to 12 billion over a period of 20 years, um, you know, allegedly, illegitimately, and criminally so. So we're talking about a company that's uh, being accused of paying between 4 and 6 million rand in cash bribes per month. Uh, various, uh, you know, heavy evidence on the one side, video evidence, sound evidence, uh, lots of documents. Um, and it, it, it speaks to... You know, who is running our country? It speaks to a bigger picture of state capture. We've seen the Gupta family in the past and the influence they've had on our senior leaders. And, you know, that's, that's a big problem. Mm. It, it, it's interesting when you put it that way, 12 billion is a lot of money. But in the entire public sector, it's very small. I guess uh, one maybe would hope that other investigative journalists would start digging around elsewhere. Uh, it's not to say that that Bosasa's 12 billion is 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 a in, insignificant amount, but when you've got a country that's that's got a budget of 1.3 trillion, uh, I guess those are the perspectives. And and if this is a is a reflection of what's going on, there's a lot more to be discovered. 
Yeah, I'm afraid so, Alec. I, I mean, and not only in the state sector. I mean, Steinhoff was the, was the example about 300 billion uh, in value that was destroyed there, uh, of which the government employees pension fund was the second biggest shareholder in that company. So um, this kind of you know, wrongdoing is, is, is everywhere, and I certainly believe there's many more companies um, probably involved in similar schemes, not perhaps the exactly carbon copy to this one, but uh, I'm, I'm certainly, uh, you know, very, um, very concerned about the, that, that potential. James, within Basasa itself, you've, you've got the two key characters, and they're well covered in your book, uh, Gavin Watson and Angelo Grizzy. Uh, Watson is is described either as a kingpin or the fall guy, a greasy as either a this this a noble whistleblower or a masterful manipulator. <laughs> is it somewhere in between, or, or how are you viewing the two of them? Look, I don't think we we must be under any illusions. Uh, my view is that uh, there's a lot that both of them have to answer for. Um, whatever their, their motives might be, at the end of the day, that will be for a judge to finally decide. We, uh, you know, we lay it out in the book what the motives are said to be for Mr. Agrici in particular. But, uh, you know, I don't think we can be under any illusion that he's been living off the proceeds of crime for a long time as well. Uh, I haven't seen him publicly go back and give back any of the, you know, the various things he might have might own big houses, Ferraris, you, you name it. Um, but so, so certainly motives will be questioned and investigated, I'm sure, by a court. Um, and as for Mr. Watson, you know, I, I think we lay it out in the book using various evidence that, that he, 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 he built a carefully orchestrated um, network um, of operations that 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 kept that kept him his fingerprints off the trigger, so to say. But um, I think that that you know the, there's certainly enough evidence that that he that he will have to answer for eventually. Hmm. Was he that smart then? That he he knew that at some point in time it would implode. So make sure you don't sign any documentation. Or was he maybe maybe that incompetent? I wouldn't think he's incompetent. I think if you go back to the 80s and, and earlier, and you look at, at various other rumors and stories as well, which we looked into a little bit, um, there's a lot of question marks around the way they've been doing business all along, the way that this family's been operating all along. Um, you look at some of the – we didn't even go into the businesses that the other brothers have been busy with over the past decade or so as well. So I, I definitely don't think it's incompetency. You don't do a 12 billion rand business where you're the CEO um, of a business like that by being incompetent either. So I think that there's a lot to be answered for. Um, and the fact that, you know, there's no X marks a spot at the moment doesn't absolve him from, from any wrongdoing at this moment. Have you met the guys? Have you met Watson or the two key characters and DeGreezy? I, I tried desperately getting uh, a meeting with uh, Gavin Watson, but uh, they weren't available uh, to comment. I did speak to several people very close to him, uh, mostly off the record, but certainly deep background and corroborating information. And I think you'll find one chapter does lay out the other side of the story quite clearly. Um, and then, of course, I, with Mr. Agrici, I did meet with him, and we had several interviews, uh, which provide his side of the story as well. What's he like in real life? We've seen him on television, larger than life, kind of keeping South Africa riveted by watching his uh, his testimony at the Zondo Commission. Yeah. Fascinating, um, fascinating. Very affable, um, larger than life is a very good description. Walks in 
no bodyguard anywhere, kind of devil may care, doesn't, you know, no fear, um, you know. Um, and, and But watching the reaction of other people around was interesting. Um, the doorman at the one particular restaurant would open the door and, and, and nod to him and say, tell him, for example, in front of me, thank you very much for what you've been doing. And these are just normal run-of-the-mill South Africans. So he certainly got a big following out there. People, A lot of people thinking he's done a, a remarkable thing here. Mm. Did you come to any conclusions, though, that he had this, this Damascene experience where he went to the other side and then came back to, to tell his story? Is, is that genuine? <laughs> Look... My, uh, I think that there's an element of that, but I think that there's a large element of self-preservation as well at play. Here. Um, I think that, uh, that 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 we've seen a big change uh, in national government leadership. We've seen a, a big move towards uh, clearing the everything out of the state of corruption. We've seen changes at the MPA, very good changes, although they certainly taking their time. Um, and I think that. You know, the, the, the noose was tightening maybe to an extent. So so I think that there's an element of self-preservation at play as well. So you want to be the first to jump out. And yes, you've got this wonderful commission where they've got these wonderful rules that whatever you say can't incriminate you, for example. Um, and you can go and you can say a whole bunch of things and name a whole bunch of people. And he's been very carefully building up a lot of evidence. Uh, I mean, there's a lot of real stuff that... that that corroborates a lot of what he's been saying. So, yeah, I, you know, I think it's somewhere in the middle between those two. And what about the the comparisons with Marcus Eurster, who's taken the other, he's taken a Stonewall Jackson kind of approach, uh, and clearly you've invested, <laughs> you've researched him pretty well. Com- comparing Gavin Watson with Marcus Eurster? No, 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 comparing a Greasy with Marcus Eurster. Greasy's Greasy. come out there, told everybody, he's, he's no, okay, I'm a, look, I'm a crook, but I'm a nice crook. Whereas uh, mm, uh, that's the opposite look, I, of what, what Eurster said. Yeah, I, uh, it's interesting. I haven't think I've thought of that question yet, uh, um, Alec, but I would, I would compare the two CEOs with, with one another. Uh, Gavin Watson and 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 uh, and, and Marcus Hewitt, and very very certainly those comparisons are very close. Neither of them are really giving anything away. They're both, you know, hiding behind lawyers, not seeing in public. Um, so so those two are that that's very interesting to me as a as a better comparison. James, uh, what kind of sales have you had the first few days that you've been on the bookshelf? <laughs> well, the publishers are very excited, Alec. They've Saying that the first print run sold out, so wow. and that's within a week. Yeah, that's that's pretty crazy. I think that we had a good cover. The whole shenanigans around President Ramaphosa and that all that that's in the news at the moment. I think has helped as well. We lay that out a little bit as well. Exactly the background, how he stepped into it um, in November 2018, and he really did. Um, how his son got pulled into this whole mess, and and so I think that that helped perhaps. And the other thing, I think the books. If I say so myself, written in a nice way, it, it reads nice. There's some nice stories in there, um, so we're very, you know, happy about the sale to date. They've done a second print run, and uh, they, they books are in the shelves at the moment. Extraordinary. Well, uh, you've got uh, Peter Dutoy to knock off the top spot with a Stellenbosch <laughs> Mafia. Why do you think it is that that uh, so many journalists like yourself are investing enormous amounts of time now in producing books, which even if they are bestsellers are not really going to change your address. 
So I, I, I don't want to say I'm, a, I'm not a journalist anymore. So I won't uh, detract from my colleagues. I, I used to be one and it was the best job I had. Um, although I do like my job now, I've got to be honest. Um, I, I, as a writer, as a part-time author, I think that, uh, that these issues need to be exposed. And even if it, even if it doesn't change anything, you know, it, people looking back one day, if we've reached a place in, in our country where things are going fantastically, we can say, well, look at where we've come from. And uh, on the other side, if we go down the tube a bit further, eventually we want people will be able to read these kind of books and say, well, you know, that's what was happening. That's what happened. Uh, and, and this is how, where we ended up. So posterity, um, trying to create more awareness, trying to bring these things together in, in, in ways that, that the broader public can understand it maybe better and, and get get deal with it better. And also warning signs, you know, lots of warnings here for us to look at. The same with Steinoff, I think it was about trying to write something so, so people could be aware of, of, of issues that they need to look out for in a sense. I think that's what I'm trying to, trying to, to achieve in a sense. Have you got another book up your sleeve? <laughs> There's always books up my sleeve, uh, Alec. Um, but these, the, the last two ones have been largely my editor. She's a real slave driver. So she, uh, she jumped on me with Steinoff and said she thinks that market's right for it. And she was right. And she asked me to do this as well. And, uh, and she stands out to be right once again. So who knows? James Stein, the author of the Bosasa Billions, which he wrote in collaboration with Paul Vicaccio, who is another well-known financial journalist uh, in South Africa. Useful insights there, as always. Well, isn't that interesting? Last week, uh, we had uh, Peter Dutoy with his Stellenbosch Mafia book, which uh, is well became the number one bestseller. He's now going to have quite a bit of competition with the Basasa Billions. But uh, that story, as mentioned, and as James was, was uh, confirming, is a long, long way from over. Our show, though, is over, and it's been a real pleasure to be with you on Rational Radio this week. Look forward to being back again, same place, same time, next week. Until then, cheerio.